Hi, this is Pastor Mike from Compass in Monterey County. Thank you for tuning in to my podcast. I hope it encourages you and gives you confidence that Jesus is by your side and that his plans for you are to bless you. Jesus Christ, he had people who betrayed him. He was stoned in virtually every city he shared the gospel. Once he said he was left for dead after he had been stoned. I want to ask him this question when I get to heaven. How would you get up the next morning and do it again? You know, resilience. The power to keep going. How did you forgive some really awful things that were done to you? He talks about it in the letter to the Philippians. How did you ever find the ability to receive the forgiveness of Jesus Christ for the awful things you did in your younger days. Those are the kinds of things we're going to talk about in this series that I hope encourages you. Today I want to talk about why Saul, that was his original name, why Saul was the most unlikely person in history ever to become a Christian. Did you know that? When he uh, was born, he was born into a family that was a, uh, his father was a Pharisee. He was born in Tarsus, which is modern day Turkey. Uh, when he was, uh, by the age of 13, he had the entire Hebrew scriptures memorized. That is the, what is our, we call our Old Testament. At the age of 13, he was sent to Jerusalem like any good Pharisee family would do. And the Bible tells us he was sent to study under Gamaliel. Gamaliel was one of the greatest teachers of the day of Judaism and Jewish law. And what you need to understand is a Pharisee was dedicated to keeping the law. They, were, they called themselves the separated ones, the strict ones. That's what the word Pharisee means. And a Pharisee studied the Mosaic law and how they were interpret, the laws were interpreted religiously by all the great Pharisees and thinkers of Judaism till that point. And they were the prosecuting attorneys for anyone who violated the law of Moses. They were the prosecutors. So when he went to Jerusalem to study under Gamaliel, he was going to Gamaliel's Law School. Gamaliel Law School of Jerusalem. And what I want you to know is that if they had taken a vote in that law school for the Jew most unlikely to become a Christian, Paul would have won by a landslide. I can identify with Paul there. Because I was a hard case. I, When people in my high school class found out later that I had become a Christian in college (laughs) and that I'm a pastor? No. (laughs) Say what? (laughs) The things that I did that I'm not proud of, through my friends, the word got back, I can't believe he became a Christian. You see, I didn't grow up in a Christian family. We weren't atheists. We just didn't care about Jesus or church. Who needs Jesus and who needs church? We don't. Uh, I, this is incredible. Until I became a Christian, I had never been to a church service. We didn't even go on Easter. 
I knew nothing about the Bible. I didn't even know there was an Old and New Testament. I had never in my life had a Bible in our house or ever opened it. Until one day, a person who was a friend invited me to a retreat. And when I found out there's going to be a religious speaker there, I said, no, I, I don't want to go to any religious retreat. I don't need religion. And then, this is the truth, he said, well, there's only going to be 100 guys there and 300 women. I said, well, maybe I do need a little religion. <laughs> I'd like to go there. And I went to that retreat. And it's the first time nobody, nobody shared Christ with me. Nobody had ever done this. And the first time I heard an intelligent presentation of Jesus Christ, I admitted I was faking it. You know anybody who's faking it? Hey, life's good. I got it all together. I don't need any of this. But it's not that way, really. Just faking it. And I felt the strange presence, and I'm not superstitious and not spiritual at that time at all. I felt the presence of Jesus Christ all around me, calling me. And I can still remember standing out underneath the stars that night and finally admitting my need to be forgiven of all the things I'll never tell you about. <laughs> to be forgiven of that. And when I asked him to come into my life and to forgive me, all that was lifted from me and I began to change dramatically. I, when I think about this, I would have been voted most unlikely probably in my high school class to become a Christian. I identify with Paul. Maybe you do too. You see... Paul was unlikely to become a Christian because he was, in his, when he was only in his 20s, was famous for being zealous about killing Christians. He actually hated the name of Jesus. He cursed the name of Jesus. And he went everywhere trying to find any Jew who would become a follower of Jesus Christ and to kill them. And the reason he hated the name of Jesus is because, you've got to understand this, he thought Jesus was an imposter. I mean, after all, Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen God. Saul said, that can't be, there's only one God, no human being, no human is a God. He didn't know about Christmas and the incarnation. And then when Jesus said, I died for your sins and you're saved by me paying your bill on the cross for your sins, that just irritated Saul, because he was a Pharisee who believed you could be good enough. You just needed to obey the law. He hated the name of Jesus Christ. So we're first introduced to Saul as he supervises the stoning, the martyrdom of the first Christian, Stephen. And this is really important. He's the one who's organized this. And the reason is, we know from church history that a lot of priests in the temple were becoming followers of Jesus. And not only that, thousands of Jews were turning to Jesus. And Saul, as a committed Pharisee, said, enough's enough. We just got to kill them all. And that's what he began to do. And so you see on your screen that in 
Just one chapter earlier, after he's killed Stephen, we read this. Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Now let me tell you how he could determine whether or not a person was a follower of Christ, even though he was a Jew. He would say to them as he drug them out of the house, Curse the name of Jesus. If you don't curse the name of Jesus, I know you're a Christian and you're dead. Curse his name. In fact, we know from church history that early on, synagogues began, that's the worship center of Jews, synagogues began to introduce into the worship service a part of it where everyone stood up and cursed the name of Jesus. Now imagine this, a whole congregation standing up We curse the name of Jesus. Why? Because if you were a lover of Jesus, you couldn't do that. That smoked them out. That's why it was introduced. Curse the name of Jesus like I do, said Saul. Then he decides to uh, go to Damascus where there's this huge population of Jews and do the same thing that he's done in Jerusalem, smoke out all these Christians and kill them. But on the way, Jesus has an interruption for him, a big surprise. There was this, like we read in our scripture in Acts 9, this blinding flash of light at noon that was brighter than the sun, Paul later says in his own testimony. Now, remember Jesus said, what? I'm the light of the world. Blinding flash of light. Jesus is in this light. And... He calls Saul by name. Let me just read what happened. I just love it. It's on your screens. This is such a great passage. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say, Saul, Saul. He calls him by name. This voice, whoever it is, knows Saul by name. He knows Saul better than Saul does. He's counted every hair on his head. Saul, Saul. Why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. You got to get the picture here. This voice calls Saul by name. He's been tracking Saul for 30 years, hunting him down. He knows everything about him. Saul knows this is a supernatural event. Of course it is. But it's happening in a nanosecond so quickly. He's not connecting the dots right away. So he asks this. Who are you, sir? Like I explained in the scripture reading. It's getting time to think. This is the answer that comes from the light. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. We just read right over that. We do not understand the utter blow it was to him. Took the breath right out of him. I am Jesus. He realized that the name that he had been cursing was God. Jesus is the name of God. (laughs) I've been cursing God. God's name. More than that, he realizes this. Jesus is risen from the dead, hasn't he? He's alive. He's speaking to me from this light. I'm so wrong about Jesus. But the kicker is the end. 
I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. (laughs) All this I'm doing against God? I'm in deep weeds. He expected in the next second, I'm toast. This guy is sweating bullets right now. Because, and this is really important. When Jesus said, he didn't say you're persecuting Christians. He didn't say you're persecuting the church. He said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Later I want to talk in this message. He is confronting him with his sin right here. He's confront naming it. Because he's killing Christians. But more importantly, Saul understands at that moment, whatever he does to the church, he does to God. Persecuting the church, hurting the church, hurts God. Now, in our new members class, I teach about this every time. The church is not an organization. It's the body of Christ. That's where Paul learns this. It's really stunning that every metaphor in the New Testament for the church, family of God, etc., temple of God, all have Old Testament roots. Only the body of Christ has no precedence in Jewish history or the Old Testament. Paul coined it. He invented it. How did he think this up from this conversion experience? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And he understood in a nanosecond that whatever he did to the church, he did to Jesus. And that's a real important lesson in modern America. Because people are saying, you know, it's Jesus and me. Who cares about the church? No, no, no. That whatever you do to the church, you do to Jesus. It's the body of Christ. Every stone he threw at the church, Jesus said, you hit me. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. The first thing we learn from Paul's conversion is that Jesus never gives up trying to win anyone's soul. You can't make Jesus give up on you. Which means we should never give up on anyone's soul. I wonder here today if there's someone you believe is so bad, so hostile to Christianity, they'll never become a Christian. Anybody come to mind? Oh, Jesus has won over a lot of hard cases. A lot of hard cases. We should never, ever say a person cannot become a Christian. Francis Thompson famously described Jesus as the hound dog of heaven. Wrote a whole long poem on that. I love that. Jesus, the hound dog of heaven. He talks about in his own life, Francis Thompson talks about how he had fled Jesus. He had tried to evade him. He tried to hid from him. But he says, Jesus kept sniffing me out. He kept following me like a hound dog would sniff out his prey. I was hunted. Don't ever say, I found Jesus. He's been hunting you from the day you were born. 
the hound dog of heaven. He loves you so much, even though you may be a hard case here this morning, and you may be hostile to Jesus Christ. Jesus is after you. He loves you. C.S. Lewis has the funniest description of conversion, his own conversion, that I've ever read. Uh, Lewis was a committed atheist. He was a professor at Oxford University, but he had some friends who were Christians who kept dropping ideas into his head, and they'd give him books that were Christian books, and he regretted reading them because they got ideas into his head. He said, you can never be too careful who your friends are or what books you read if you're a committed atheist. And slowly he begins to open up to Jesus Christ. And here's how he writes about his conversion. This, some of you, some of you can probably identify with this. You must picture me alone in that room in Maudlin College, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted from my reading, even for a second, the steady unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet that's what that which I greatly feared had at last come upon me in the Trinity term of 1929 I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of English history I was brought in Kicking, struggling, resentful, darting my eyes in every direction for a chance of escape. That is so true. I just wonder if some of you identify with this. You were a reluctant Christian. And in your high school class, or your friends in Salinas, you'd be voted as un- most unlikely to become a Christian. Isn't that true? There are dozens of you like that here that have become Christians. And people have found out that you go to worship. They say, say what? That you go to a Bible study. Say what? That you're a Christian. Huh? You? I used to party with you. I know the things you did. You can't be a Christian. You are? Surely there's some of you like that. That because people used to know the way you were, they were convinced you would never come become a lover of Jesus Christ. But you are. And aren't you glad that one day you too stopped faking it? That you had it all together when you didn't. And you finally stopped faking it and admitted your need for a new beginning. For forgiveness and reconstruction of your life. Aren't you glad? You know, I faked it for a lot of years. All through high school. Surely someone here today is still faking it. Your life isn't as together as you'd like people to believe it is. Maybe today you would stop faking it and come to Jesus or come back to Jesus. Admit the wrongdoing that you've done and let him give you a new beginning. It can happen.
That's the first thing we learn from the conversion of Paul. The second encouragement we get from Paul's conversion is that no matter how big our sin is, Jesus' grace and forgiveness is bigger still. There's no such thing as something so bad he won't forgive it. Paul writes about this to Timothy, his young disciple. Now, this is on your screen. This is a phenomenal passage. Even though I was a blasphemer, I cursed the name of Jesus. And a persecutor of the church, rocking the church. And a violent man, read killer. Killer. Blood on my hands. I was shown mercy. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Of whom I am the worst. The word in Greek is numero uno. (laughs) The biggest. I'm at the head of the line. Paul says, I am the worst ever. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Jesus might display his unlimited patience. What Paul is saying there is, if Jesus could forgive me, you can bet your life he will you. Because I'm a lot worse than you were. Maybe I'm speaking to someone this morning who's sure that what you've done is so bad. Jesus would never take you in. Maybe you have regrets in your life that still chew on you. You haven't felt forgiven. You don't you are not forgiven yet. I remember a few years ago a man who had murdered his wife had heard our radio program and heard me speak and uh, sent out a request that I would come and see him in prison. And I said, yes, I'll come and see you. But when I walked into that room, I got to tell you, I, I was as nervous as a cat in a field full of pit bulls. <laughs> I have never in my life seen a man with such emotionless, cold eyes. It made the hair on the back of my head stand up. I've never seen such an emotionless person It was creepy. And he began to describe to me how much he hated his wife. How he enjoyed killing her. With a coldness in his voice that was incredible. And then he got to the point where he said, but I still feel guilty that I killed her. And... So I began to describe to him the forgiveness of Jesus and how he took our place on the cross and paid our debt, our bill, for all of the things that we've done. And this is what he said in my journal I wrote down. He said, I cannot come to Jesus. I'm a wife killer. Jesus would never accept me. I began to tell him, There's only one person that Jesus Christ, that cannot come to Jesus Christ, and that's a person who thinks they're good enough. That's a person who thinks they haven't done anything bad enough to need this bloody mercy on the cross. That's a person who's so arrogant, they don't think they have anything that bad in their life that 
Jesus would have to die for them. That's the kind of person, the only person who can't come to Jesus Christ, who thinks they're so good they don't have any bad in their life that needs forgiving. That person can't come to Jesus because he has nothing to offer to them. They don't need him. But you, you're so full of guilt. You know you are a sinner. You're different. Did you know that Jesus said, I am a friend of sinners? You qualify. You can be his friend. You know you're a sinner. Will you let him be your friend? Blank. This is what he said to me. That's too good to be true. And he closed the conversation and it was over. I am convinced through the years that it's not our sins that keep us from becoming Christians. It's our pride. We're too proud to take this bloody forgiveness and to say we need the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. It's our pride that keeps so many of us from coming to this lifting forgiveness of Jesus Christ. I love the story about one Sunday, a dad bringing five kids to church. Mom sat on one end of the pew. Dad on the other end squeezed these five rambunctious kids between them. Preacher began to preach, and the preacher looked right at this dad and said, Do you have faith in Jesus? And dad said, Yes, I do. He said, Do you have faith in Jesus enough? If I lay down a two-by-four here, 15 feet long, on the floor, you could walk across it? He said, I believe I do. Yes, I do. The preacher looked at him and said, But if I put that two-by-four between the two tallest buildings in Chicago and ask you to walk across it, would you have the faith to do it? Would you do it? Dad said, no, I wouldn't do that. Preacher said, but if on the other side there was a man dangling one of your kids over the edge of the building, 200 feet below is the ground, would you walk across that board then to save your child? The father looked down the road at his children and he said, well, which one would he be dangling over the edge? <laughs> Jesus is not like that. He doesn't look down the line and say, well, which one? Because every one of them, every one of us, He wants to save. And so you can write up a list of the worst things you've ever done, all the bad things you've done. And you show that list to Jesus Christ, He'll take that list and He'll say this to you. I'm so glad you finally admitted these things. I've been waiting a long time for this. So glad. But I want you to know, for all of these things, I died for them. And then he'd tear it up and say, you're washed clean and forgiven. But you got to write the list up. That's the Lord's Supper. That's when we begin to admit what's on that list. Because you're forgiven of what you confess. And it's so important to come to terms with that and confess it. Third, Paul's life teaches us that Jesus will knock us down if that's what it takes to wake us up and to get us to admit that we've done wrong. He'll use pain. Because sometimes it's only pain that we become teachable. Is that not right? No. No, that's right. 
Years later, when he was arrested for preaching Christ, he was taken before Agrippa, the governor of Judah, and asked, why do you keep preaching Jesus when you get, keeps getting you into trouble? And Paul defends himself by giving his testimony. Twice later in Acts, he gives his testimony. And he adds an important piece of information that's not earlier in Acts about what happened that day on the Damascus Road. He says, Jesus asked him a significant question. And it wasn't just, why are you persecuting me? He asked a second question to him that was really significant and shook Paul. And the question was this, it's on the screen. Saul, why do you keep kicking against the goads? What's a goad? Well, I tell you, everyone in the first century, second, third, fourth, fifth centuries, they, everyone knew what a goad was. Because in those days, farmers would use an ox to pull a plow to prepare the field for planting. And to get that ox going in the direction the master wanted him to go, the right direction, he used a long pointed stick called a goad, and he'd poke that ox, and that getting moving down the right direction. But if an ox was particularly rebellious, and no matter if he got poked with a goad, wouldn't go in the right direction, either just stood there or went in the wrong direction, He'd poke him again with the goad. And what often happened is an ox would kick at that goad. He'd kick at it. But every time he kicked at that pointed stick, that goad, he inflicted pain on himself. Self-inflicted pain. He began to bleed. More and more pain every time he kicked. That's the picture Jesus is giving Paul. Paul, he's saying, very important here, I've been tracking you for a long time. And I've been using a goad. I'd, maybe it was priests who had become Christians in the temple who shared their faith with you. Maybe as you saw Stephen calmly die, you were haunted by how calmly he died. Maybe it was people you were murdering, dragging out of their homes. But I have been speaking to you. I've been using things. There's mess us in your life. I've been goading you with your pain. Isn't it time to stop? I've been after you a long time, and it's through your pain. But you're kicking at it. And every time you kick at it, you just give yourself more pain. Do you know anybody who just keeps going through the same pain? I mean, really, the names change, but the problem's the same. Anybody you know who just won't finally admit that they're part of the problem, they're causing their own pain, that's what he's saying to Paul with a goad. He's giving this picture to him that he's been calling him for a long time. And will he now finally admit what's causing so much pain in his life? I've been talking about Saul, but we know him as Paul. How did he get the name Paul? Jesus gave it to him. You know, Jesus would change the name of people who are becoming Christians to signal that they're going to become a new per person and have a new life. He did that. Remember with the tax collector Levi preached about that in Luke's Gospel a few months ago? Despised tax collector. He renames him Matthew and calls him to his disciples. Matthew means gift of God. You've got a new life ahead of you. And he did. He wrote the Gospel of Matthew. He changed. He comes to Saul 
calls him on the Damascus road to become a Christian, changes his name to Paul. Do you know what the name Paul means in Greek? You're going to love this. Small. Big, self-confident, arrogant, self-righteous Paul. Every time he heard the name Paul, he remembered, I'm not so big. I'm not so great. I need Jesus. I'm small. Jesus will use painful circumstances, consequences of our behavior, if that's what it takes to teach us to change. And so Jesus confronts Paul with his sin on the Damascus road. You're persecuting me. Meaning you're murdering Christians and hurting the church. Now, get the picture. You can't change what you won't admit needs changing. Maybe you're a 36 handicapper as a golfer. You're a hacker. You've been hacking around for years. And finally, you've never taken a lesson. Finally, you decide, I'm going to go to a pro and I'm going to improve my game. I'm going to get better. You go to the pro and he starts correcting your swing. Well, let's see, the way your grip is, that's not right. You've got to change it to this and the swing. And you look at him and say, you know, I've been using this grip a long time. I'm comfortable with it. I don't want to change it. And you know, I don't want to start inside out here. I want to just... You start fighting with the pro. No, I feel more comfortable doing it my old way. Do you get better? You don't change a thing. Nothing changes. That's why at the core of the Christian faith is coming to admission and repentance. Because that's the new life. I'm just wondering if there's something that would get better in your life with someone, if you stop kicking against the goad and started admitting that you're part of the problem? Is there a relationship? Maybe with a grown child? Maybe with somebody at work? That it would improve, maybe in your marriage? Things would get better if you just start to admit some of your junk instead of accusing them. Just starting to admit you. Kicking against the goat. Going to go through the same pain again and again until we start admitting. That's what he's saying to Saul. I close with this. You've probably heard of Desmond Tutu, the famous bishop in South Africa. He wrote a book trying to explain why it was that when uh, Nelson Mandela was released from prison and elected president of South Africa... And when apartheid ended, what was being done to blacks, why wasn't there widespread bloodshed against whites? Now, Africa can still be a dangerous place, and there was some bloodshed, but not anywhere near on the scale that the world expected. This book in it, Tutu, and they announced this, they talked about it at the opening of the World Cup. Tutu in this book says the reason is there was forgiveness given for unspeakable things because whites admitted what they had done. They admitted. This is one of the lines in his book. There can be no reconciliation without confession by the wrongdoer. Forgiveness is not cheap. It cost Jesus his death on the cross. It will cost the death of our sins and admission of our sins. With confession, 
reconciliation was possible. That could be the secret in some relationship you have. It could change everything. If you just be the first to do some admitting. That's the Lord's Supper that I invite you to today. To say, oh Lord, search me and see if there be any wicked way in me. Holy Spirit, speak truth to me. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast of Dr. Mike from Compass Church in Salinas. We hope you're encouraged by his practical Bible-based teaching 